I have a confession to make. But before I make that confession, and especially if you are somebody who knows me, I want you to promise to hear the whole story out before making any judgments or jumping to conclusions. I post the story here in its entirety, uh, but I also will share it in written form on LinkedIn and other social media. Here we go. Chapter one, the confession. I hated the Jewish people, all the Jewish people. And the emphasis here is on past tense. Yes, I was anti-Semitic, I admit it. Even though I am a Semite, as this term broadly refers to the peoples who speak Semitic languages, such as Arabic, Hebrew, among others. I wanna tell you my story of redemption with four goals in mind. Number one, I acknowledge that prejudice and especially hateful prejudice is a vile philosophy that should be eradicated from our society. And by that, I specifically mean irrational hate towards an entire class of people because of their affiliation to that class. Number two, religious zeal, nationalism, and ideologies are abstract concepts that we adopted to unite us on purposeful missions, which is, which is a good thing. But let's not have these abstract concepts supersede our humanity. Humans are real. You can touch another human, but you can't touch Zionism or Jihad. Furthermore, we all share 99.9% .9 of our DNA. So don't let the 0.1% that flipped here or there divide us. Instead, focus on the 99.9% .9 that binds us. Number three, there is hope. Modern history has shown us more often than not that peace always prevails. It is the way, to quote the Mandalorian. Number four, I paint a dream. I paint a dream for how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can possibly be resolved once the irrational fear is subdued. I should also note that the concepts I explain here apply equally to many other conflicts around the world. If you agree with me and support the message of peace and hope that I convey here, then I sincerely invite you to share my story with as many people as you can. Thank you. Chapter two, nurtured to fear the other. For you to appreciate my redemption, you need to hear my story, where I came from and how I came to be. I was born in the 1970 in Egypt on a housebed by a midwife in a district called Shubra in Cairo. Salam ala ahl shubra. Note that at the time, Israel was occupying the Sinai Peninsula. So the two countries were locked in a state of war. My parents took me to the UK shortly after I was born. I spent five years there while my father was getting his PhD in accounting 
from Southampton University. In 1975, we moved back to Egypt, where I lived until 1995. And that's when I moved to the United States. Now I'm 50, I'll admit my age, five years in the UK, 20 years in Egypt, and 25 years in the United States. Today, I'm a very proud Egyptian American with a little bit of British flair. I'm also a proud Muslim with a touch of healthy agnosticism. It's a hard word for me. English is my second language. I firmly believe that human minds can hold multiple states at the same time. There is no need to be binary about it. I'm proud to be American. I'm proud to be Egyptian. I'm proud to be Muslim. And I respect my scientific brain all at the same time. Ever since I was young, and soon after I became intellectually conscious, the only narrative, the only story I heard from everybody around me was the Jewish people are here to kill all of us. That's what I heard. The Jewish people are here to kill all of us and build their greatest, their greater state of Israel that will span the land from the Euphrates River in Iraq to the Nile River in Egypt. That was the story I was told, regardless of whether uh, you know it to be true or not. It's how I, it's what I heard. It was the main narrative uh, most of us were told as we grew up, actually, during that time. How can we not hate the other when we fear that they are here to kill all of us? In addition to that fear, there was widespread anger over the many Palestinians that were slaughtered in the Nakba of 1948. Uh, I invite you to search on YouTube for Nakba 1948 Israeli historian, and you can see some good uh, overviews of that from the Israeli perspective. And the many Egyptians that were also killed during Israel's occupation of Sinai from 1967 to 1973. So I'm not excusing myself, but for a child, who was just forming his notion of the world around him. The narrative, the story, the people you see complaining about relatives that died or got maimed becomes the truth. And the fear coupled with the anger of, over all of that death leads to hate, unfortunately. That narrative is still being told today. That story is still being told today. Though many are starting to see through it, and to be fair, I hear from many of my Israeli friends born around the same time that they had a, sim a similar, a very similar counter narrative. They had a very similar counter story, exactly matching the story. Those Arabs are here to kill all of us so that the land from the river, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea becomes theirs. They just want to push us all in the sea to drown us all. That's the narrative my Israeli friends tell me they heard. And same thing, they lost people in these wars as well. You couple that anger with that fear from the story, you get hatred. So we've both taught to fear the other and adding some really horrendous wars of rage in the mix. That hatred becomes entrenched deep in our hearts and minds from a very young age. In retrospect, I blame our governments and elderly for doing that to us for letting their prejudiced ideologies shape us in that manner. But uh, they didn't know either. 
And they did lose a lot of loved ones in those wars, uh, regardless of uh, their intentions. Chapter three, emerging from the matrix of hate. I'm a very big fan of the Matrix movies. And just like Neo came out with the Matrix to see the truth, this is the story of how I came out of the Matrix of hate and saw the truth. And I hear that many of my Israeli friends and Jewish friends and Arab and Muslim friends are having very similar experiences. And even in other cultures and other conflicts, that hate and emerging from it is a very common story that I hear. So this is my story. I moved to the US in 1995 to get my PhD at Stanford University, where, and, and, and I still, at that time, I still held deep resentment towards the Jewish people. Again, it was the only stories the media and everybody around me were telling me in Egypt at the time. There was no uh, internet. <laughs> there was no Google. There was no other source of information than what the media tells you and what uh, people around you tell you. I was irrationally prejudiced. I'll admit that. But here in the U.S., I started to see the humanity of the other side. I started to see the truth. And I emerged from the matrix of hate that my mind was submerged in for so many years. My first research advisor at Stanford was of uh, Arab origin and didn't treat me in a fair way. To my aid came Hector Garcia Molina, a Mexican-American professor at Stanford who was probably an atheist or agnostic, I'm not sure actually. Back home, I was also nurtured to be prejudiced against what we called kafirs or disbelievers, essentially. It's anybody who disbelieved, who did not believe uh, that Allah is the one and only true God. So that by definition includes atheists and agnostics. Hector became the first person to lend their privilege to me. Uh, lending privilege is a very important uh, concept. I encourage you to go to YouTube and search for Lend Your Privilege to understand what that means. Hector lent his privilege to me. He helped me out during a very tough time, and he didn't have to do that. For those who don't know, Hector was the research advisor for Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google. It's such a small world. As far as I'm concerned, Hector was not a kafir. He was not a disbeliever. On the contrary, Hector was an angel by all meanings of that word. He was a true human. He was one of the very first reasons why the vile virus of prejudice started to be conquered in my heart. Hector passed away in November 2019 at the age of 65. We, we all miss him so, so dearly. Then came my second research advisor, Nick McCune, who was very instrumental in helping me mature in, in so many ways. Nick especially focused on training me to listen, pause, reflect, before I speak or respond. Something which I admit I'm still struggling with to this day. I'm getting, I'm getting better at it, but still struggling. He was also very instrumental in shaping my public speaking skills 
that hopefully you see in this story, especially on how to connect with an audience. Nick, uh, like Hector, continued to cure me of the prejudice against the other. He was very instrumental in my life in so many ways, including connecting me with Frank Marshall, who became the angel investor for my first startup, Viva Smart, which was later acquired by Yahoo. Nick and Frank, if you're reading or listening, thanks for all that you did for me. After Nick came Mendel Rosenblum, my research advisor for my PhD thesis, which I finished at Stanford with. The thesis was called The V Matrix, so you can see how much I really like The Matrix. And you can just search Google for The, the, the V Matrix with the letter V ahead of Matrix and my last name, and you'll see it. Clearly, from Mendel's last name, it was obvious he's Jewish. And that made me very cautious when working with him. I assume maybe he was cautious from my last name, having the word Allah in it as well. Hopefully not. I don't think he was. I wasn't sure if he was religious, but as I got to know him, I felt that he was uh, atheist or at least agnostic. For those who don't know, Mendel is the co-founder of VMware, one of the most impactful information technology companies of our generation. His wife, Diane Green, is just as amazing as him. I interacted with her a few times, not as much as I did with Mendel. Uh, Diane was also the co-founder of VMware, but in addition, played that tremendous role in growing uh, Google Cloud, uh, where I work today. So I work for Google Cloud, and I should note that the opinions I'm expressing here are my own opinions. They, they don't represent my employer in any way, shape, or form. I'm very proud of Google and very proud to be working for Google Cloud. Both Mendel and Diane invested in Cloudera, my second startup, when it was just an idea with four founders. They obviously believed in me, and for that, I'm very grateful. I ended up making them some good cash because Cloudera kind of worked out. Over the years, I came to know Mendel as the most humble, ethical, smart, and humanistic person that I have ever came across. In addition, he, he had an amazing sense of humor. He has an amazing sense of humor. He loves to laugh, and he loves to make those around him laugh. Uh, he sometimes reminded me of our older uh, Seth Rogen, to, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Mendel was my first Jewish angel. I'll say this again. Mendel was my first Jewish angel. Not only did he solidify the elimination of prejudice from my heart, because of him, I learned not to fear the other and never to label a whole group of people by the vile actions of the few. This was truly when I started to emerge from the matrix of hate, like Neo emerged from the matrix of the virtual world he was in. I started to emerge from that matrix of hurt, and I started to see that I was nurtured on these things, but they were not real. I started to see that was just all human. Thank you, Mendel, for changing me in such a fundamental way. Emerging from the matrix of hate, I started to see all the other amazing Jewish people that I encountered in my life. 
for example, uh, after Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, I always looked up to Einstein as a role model. I knew that he was a Jew, but my hatred-soaked brain suppressed that link. I also adored the Marvel Universe, the Avengers, Thor, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Daredevil, and Thanos. Really, who doesn't love the Marvel Universe? The creator of that universe is Stan Lee. Another amazing atheist Jew. May his soul rest in peace. The von Neumann architecture for modern computers was invented by John von Neumann. Another amazing atheist Jew. I started to see other amazing Jewish people that I admired in the arts and especially comedians whom I really like, especially folks like John Stewart, Seth Rogen, uh, Sarah Silverman, she's amazing, uh, Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, uh, Sasha Cohen, he's a genius, uh, Steven Spielberg, come on, E.T., I grew up on that movie, and many, many others, obviously, and Jerry Seinfeld. I think many of them might also be atheists, I'm, I'm not sure, actually, but this sheds the light for me that Jew is an ethnic ancestry attribute more than it is a religious attribute per se. And, and hold on to this observation, because I'll come back to it later. Uh, on a side note, though, uh, I can't say all of these uh, amazing uh, Jewish folks without highlighting that my favorite singer in the whole world is Om Kathum. Uh, Om Kathum is an Egyptian Muslim whose vocal cords might never be repeated again, ever. And I know many of my Israeli friends and even American friends love Om Kathum and admire like the, just the vocal range that she can achieve with her with her voice. Uh, my favorite Muslim scientist of all time is Muhammad al-Khawarizmi. He's a Persian. Uh, he set the foundations of algebra that we have today. And the concept of an algorithm, in fact, the word algorithm is, der is derived from his last name, al-Khawarizmi. Like me, many of the prejudiced Israelis who are also submerged on the, in this matrix of hate who were nurtured during their upbringing to fear and hate the others also emerged from that matrix once they saw, spoke, and understood the other side. I will highlight that again, this notion of matrix of hate is common in many other world conflicts around the world. It's not unique to this situation. And some of them overcome that hate, uh, like again, and are continuing to overcome it like in the US or in South Africa or in India, uh, given they were occupied by the British Empire. But that remains a problem in many other regions around the world as well today. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that some of my words and advice and that my story will help all of those people also emerge from the matrix of hurt, just like Neo emerged from the virtual matrix that the computers put him in. Chapter 4 the most impactful jewel of all time. The most impactful Jew of all time, for me at least, obviously, from my opinion, from my perspective, is Yuval Noah Harari. He is my most favorite author, period. And his book, Sapiens, changed me in a very fundamental way. 
Before I get back to that, it behooves me to mention that my second most favorite author is actually Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov is one of the greatest sci-fi writers of our time. If you haven't read his book, I, Robot, you should go read that. He too is an atheist, secular Jew. Going back to uh, Yuval and Sapiens. If you haven't read that book, if you haven't read Sapiens, uh, you should stop listening to me right now and go read that book. Because, uh, I mean, the advice he gives there is way more important than anything you'll hear from yours truly here. And maybe after you finish the book, come back and listen to me. I'm not kidding. I mean, that book will change you. It will evolve you. In this book, Harari studied the history of human civilization going back 150,000 years to when scientific Eve, also non known as mitochondrial Eve, or MTE for short, gave birth, gave birth to the first of us, Homo sapiens, uh, in the southeast of Africa. He studied our actions over the centuries and came to a conclusion that changed me forever. It truly changed me. Harari's conclusion, which in retrospect actually is, is so obvious, <laughs> is that nations, religions, tribes, countries, identities, ideologies, even sports clubs or companies that we work for are abstract concepts. They are fictional constructs, fictional narratives or stories that we created to help unify us on certain efforts, which actually is a good thing. And it is the reason why we succeeded as a civilization compared to many other species. To give you a concrete example, I work at Google, but Google itself is an abstract concept. I cannot touch Google. Uh, it's, it's just a bunch of legal laws written in documents. And even those documents, by the way, today, they're virtual uh, documents. They, they don't exist in, in just a bunch of bits <laughs> sitting in a, in, a, in a hard disk or a memory somewhere. You cannot touch the bits. Yet I and all Googlers, as we affectionately call ourselves, we, we, we refer to people who work, to, work at Google as Googlers, we love Google. We believe in the mission of universal information access and the fact that that universal information access, like all the videos you can see on YouTube or whatever you can search on Google itself and find across the entire globe, will set us free, will set us all free. In the long term, it will, I assure you. That's the reason why many of us and many of the younger generation is emerging out of the matrices that they have been immersed in is because they now can seek that knowledge as opposed to wait for it to be fed to them through their surrounding environment. But going back to Google, I can touch another Googler, uh, with their permission, obviously. <laughs> I can touch Google's buildings. I can touch a phone running a YouTube app, the YouTube app. But I can never touch Google itself. I, like, it, it really, Google does not exist. It's just a bunch of abstract concepts put together through a legal document and shareholders that own share in Google and employees that work for Google and apps that Google built or buildings that Google's own, but Google doesn't exist. Yet I believe so strongly in Google. The same applies to religions. Though the devout among us will see that that abstract concept of a religion was dictated by God to us versus created by a lawyer or by some other human. 
The goal of all religions as its heart is to unify us in treating each other fairly and respectfully. Though obviously atheists would argue that uh, you don't need such a construct uh, because you can be a good human by having an ethical uh, framework that you abide by, which by the way is just another abstract concept that we, they, believe in. Our countries, religions, tribes, sports clubs, and many of uh, the other identities we hold so precious are just fiction. I, I, I don't minim want to minimize the meaning of fiction. They're important, but they don't exist. They're abstract. They're made up. They are abstract concepts that we fell in love with deeply. And the funniest example, actually, that Harari uh, gave in Sapiens is uh, that uh, is money. The concept of money is also a fiction, and it's the biggest fiction of all. It's the biggest lie that we all believe in. Uh, it's not a lie. Uh, it's there, so I don't want to say lie, but it's the biggest fiction. It's the biggest abstract concept that we all believe in, the biggest story that we all believe in. Uh, we believe in it so much, actually. And you have to know that a, a dollar bill or a shekel or a pound or whatever currency you have, when you hold that piece of paper or that metallic coin, this is not the money. This is actually a contract. It's a legal contract that says, uh, printed on that coin or that piece of paper, that says that you own money somewhere else. It's not the money itself. So just for people who think hey, they can touch money, you actually cannot touch money. But to illustrate the point, Harari argued that if you were to give a monkey uh, or a three-year-old for that matter, uh, the choice between a Bitcoin, he actually didn't use Bitcoin, but I'll, I'll use Bitcoin as the example here. Uh, he used he used the money as the example. But if you were to give them a choice of a Bitcoin, and a Bitcoin now is worth something between thirty to $40,000, as you know, it fluctuates a lot, hopefully to stabilize one day. So if you give them a choice between a Bitcoin worth $40,000 and a banana, the monkey and the three-year-old will always pick the banana. Maybe if you explain a bit to the three-year-old, they will have some uh, qualm about it, but maybe <laughs> probably they will still go for the banana because it's not abstract. They can touch it. They can eat it right here, right now. Maybe with the three-year-old, we'll go with ice cream, so banana. So why and how did this idea change me? It changed me because it lifted another veil off of my eyes and brain. It helped me emerge from another matrix that I was entrenched in. It helped me clarify the difference between an abstract concept, a fiction, and a real human opposite me in the physical world. Because of that book, I promised myself, and I hope you will as well, that going forward, I will never, ever let any of these abstract fictions or concepts get in the way of me seeing the other. Whether the other is a human being or even an animal like my two dogs and cat whom I adore. For example, just to, to, to make the point, some Islamic scholars interpret Islam, uh, my religion, interpret that Islam, my religion whom I love and deeply believe in, I need to make that point, they interpret that Islam urges us not to have dogs in our home. They even say it's haram. Haram means a completely bad, a horrible thing. Like, like killing somebody is haram, owning a dog is haram. They would go that far. And again, not scholars agree on that, but some do. 
But I love dogs. I think dogs are amazing. They are very useful. They will protect you. They don't harm anybody. And they love unconditionally, uh, even better than humans, because they don't have that uh, abstract uh, bullshit in their heads. <laughs> they will protect their owners with their own lives. So sorry. I will not let that abstract notion from Islam, if I were to believe these interpreters, uh, these uh, scholars, uh, override what I can see and touch. Sorry, I won't. Similarly, uh, some Islamic uh, uh, scholars conclude that uh, Islam means that all atheists or kafirs, as uh, they refer to them, will go to hell. Straight, will go to hell. I just can't accept that either. I will not accept that. Hector Garcia Molina, which I shared his story above, will absolutely have his own heaven. There's no question about it, if such a heaven exists. So my advice to you is this. Please, please, please. I'll say this again. Please, please, please. While you should absolutely be proud in the abstract concepts that you believe in, I'm a proud Muslim. Egyptian American. I'm a proud Googler. I'm a proud gamer. I'm a proud nerd. Don't let those abstract concepts supersede your humanity and what you can actually see and touch. Said another way, imagine that you are on a bridge and that bridge is between your abstract realities, these concepts that you built in your brains that don't exist in the real world and your physical realities, the stuff that actually exists in the real world. You shouldn't let that abstract reality supersede the physical one, but rather you should balance yourself on both to stay on that bridge. And if you feel that the abstract is causing a compromise on the physical, is coming at the cost of your humanity, in other words, then pay conscious attention to bring that back. Chapter five, we are one. And this chapter might be the most important chapter in the whole uh, story because I explain in it and I show in it why we are one. So first I wanna bring things back to the conflict in Israel, Palestine. We have a number of ideologies colliding with each other in a very, very um, negative way. And we are letting these ideologies and abstract fictions, abstract stories, abstract concepts that happened in the past, but they happened, it's gone. And now they're being told to other people, supersede our humanity for each other. I will pick a couple of examples here to illustrate the fallacies in them with the goal of bringing us back to being one, one, even while being super proud of our own identities, our own abstract concepts and constructs. Until recently, while I no longer held any resentment towards the Jewish people, in fact, it got replaced by admiration, I was still an anti-Zionist. I believe Zionism was super evil. I redirected my resentment against the Jewish people because my brain couldn't handle that conflict of what's going on and 
now I see Mendel is great and how could this be? So I simply, to resolve the mental conflict and calm myself down and calm my brain down, I redirected the resentment towards Zionism instead and Zionists. And I failed to see that this is prejudice just in another form. I just, <laughs> I just moved the prejudice from here to there. I failed to see that I deviated from the lesson that I learned from Yuval. I let the fiction supersede the reality. I know this is hard for Palestinians, and it's also hard for anti-Zionists to hear, uh, but please bear with me. I will explain more later. Zionism, at its core, is actually pure, just like Islam, just like Judaism, Buddhism, nationalism, and jihad. All of these are pure concepts at their heart. Until they become radicalized or ultraized as an ultra-nationalism. Zionism, as far as I understand it, from speaking to many of my Israeli and uh, Jewish friends, but also speaking to my Palestinian and Arab friends, once we really get to the root of it, is the need to have a safe home where Jewish people will no longer be persecuted like they were in the past. And they were persecuted really badly in the past. We cannot deny that. And for uh, folks that uh, are anti-Zionists or don't like the words I'm seeing here, please be patient with me. Please bear with me. And I recommend you go look at the chapter uh, in which I compare uh, Zionism to Palestinianism. It's a, it's a very respectable goal. How can anyone, including myself, stand against that cause of finding a place where he can feel safe? Uh, especially given all of the horrific persecution that the Jewish people had to endure. So what I fail to see, however, is the separation between that abstract concept, the idea and the ideology of Zionism, of finding a safe home to protect ourselves in the future, from how certain prejudiced folks, and I will repeat, prejudiced folks within that ideology, applied it in a very twisted way that, that, that destroyed its meaning in front of many of us. I failed to see that my resentment is not towards Zionism, but rather against Zionism being twisted to mean a safe home for the Jewish people at the expense of the other, or in other words, at the expense of being humane. That by definition, by the way, I mean, that's uh, like, it's clearly, if you have a logical brain, that by definition is a prejudiced ideology as it perceives, it perceives all the rest of humanity as the other. <laughs> you're not Jew, you're the other. But if we go back 100,000 years, and this is proven by science with many, many experiments, you will see and I show a picture of this in the written form of this article. So I recommend you go look at the written form or you can go search on Wikipedia as well. You will see that Israel, that piece of land where Israel exists today and Palestine exists today was a choke point for all the original Homo sapiens spreading from Africa to the rest of the world. We are all, literally every single person in this world is indigenous to that piece of land if you go back 100,000 years. So it's a question of how back in time, you, how far back you want to go, really. Even, the, even Asian folks are indigenous to that land. Folks in Alaska, in, in Siberia, are indigenous to that land. Their ancestor lives in it. Their ancestors lived in it. 
And uh, that was that is true because there was no airplanes back then. When people were passing through that point, they spent 10,000 years <laughs> loving and making uh, kids. So we all have some DNA that traces back to that point. It's, it's Again, that is a proven fact. So case in point, just as an example, and I wish we can all go and analyze our DNA to, to show this. Uh, yours truly, uh, my uh, DNA breakdown per the spits that I sent to 23andMe, uh, my breakdown, and I have this in detail in the reticle article, so you can go look it up, uh, but I'll read it out here. 74.8% uh, Egyptian, 10.3% Mesopotamian, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, again, English is my second language, but that means the region in Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and the Gulf. 4.8% uh, North African, so that's uh, from Morocco all the way to Egypt on the upper side of Africa. 2.3% uh, Sub-Saharan, so that's kind of the countries below them, uh, Sudan, Chad, Niger, Mali. Uh, Levantine, 2.2% Levantine, which is Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. 2.1% uh, Coptic, Egyptian. 0.7% Sardinian, which is uh, uh, between Italy and Greece. 0.3% Siberian, so that's Russian, so I have Russian DNA in me. 0.1% Ashkenazi Jewish. I will repeat this again. 0.1% Ashkenazi Jewish. So I'm Semite because I speak Arabic, which is a Semitic language, but also by lineage uh, to my Jewish ancestry. 0.1% South European, so that's Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, Greece again. And 0.1% African hunter-gatherer, <laughs> uh, which means if you mess with me or my family, uh, I will hire Liam to hunt you down. You know which Liam I'm talking about. Per 23andMe, uh, to put things in perspective, 0.1% Ashkenazi Jewish means that approximately 500 years ago, I had a 10th generation grand-grandparent out of 1,024. That's uh, uh, 2 to the 10. We all only have two parents, by the way. <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> we cannot have more than two parents. Uh, so 2 to the 10 is 1024 grandparents. Out of those 1024, there, I had a grandparent on my mother's side who was 100% Ashkenazi Jew uh, with, a comp with a confidence level of more than 50%. If you change the confidence level, we might have to go back uh, a few more hundred years. So, as a Zionist, and this is my advice to you, you can, you can be and you should be very proud of your abstract Zionist ideology of finding a home to be safe. Very proud of your Jewish identity and culture. But never, never let have uh, let that have you see anybody else as different or less or above or whatever. Like it doesn't matter because we literally are all the same. We're driven from the same grandma. <laughs> uh, to be, uh, whether you're religious or not, by the way, there's even a scientific Eve or religious Eve. It's the same grandma in both cases. So it's a moot argument. And and not only that, uh, I mean, these other people that you might think are not Jewish, they actually will have Jewish DNA in them. They, they do have a Jew in them. And they might actually have more Jew in them than you do if you were to go and do a DNA test. So in other words speaking, and this is the whole point of this entire story, we are all one. This applies to people in other regions of the world, by the way, in Asia or in, 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 in North or South America. We are all one. We're all driven from the exact same grandma. 
So I admire many Jewish people, as I shared earlier, but I will also tell you this with unwavering conviction. And please listen to the whole sentence. Don't jump to conclusion. The Jewish people aren't any more special than the Christian, Black, Hispanic, White, Muslim, Asian, Arab peoples, or any other group of people for that matter. Similarly, I would say the white people should know the same. They're not more special than any other class of people. We are all special. I repeat this again. We are one. We are all special. And we need to see all others as special because scientifically speaking, we are 99.9% .9 genetically the same. And if we come from this, the last 1,000 years, if we have a common ancestor in the, in the last 1,000 years, we are 99.9999% the same. So please don't let the few DNA strands that flipped left or right, coupled with your abstract concept in your brain that doesn't exist in the real world, lead you to believe that the other is inferior or different or not inferior, they're just the other. They're, they're evil, they're the other and doesn't deserve the same uh, rights or the same respect or the same treatment that you do. I want to remind prejudiced Zionists, again, this is for prejudiced Zionists, of the final few words from Theodore Herzl's concluding remarks in his book, The Jewish State. Again, I'm not making a judgment of Theodore himself. I never saw him. I, never, I don't know him. Maybe he was prejudiced. Maybe he was not prejudiced. I don't know. And actually, none of us know. None of us met him. But he writes, And whatever we attempt there to accomplish for our own welfare, where we act powerfully and beneficially for the good of humanity. For the good of humanity. He didn't say for the good of the Jewish people. Because we are all, humanity is all Jewish people. There is nothing humane in displacing and oppressing another entire population that are indigenous to that land. And they are indigenous to that land, not only because their parent and grandparent was born on that land. It's because if you go back and if you compare, if you go do a test of your DNA compared to their DNA, they have Jewish, they are of the Jewish pride. They are absolutely of the Jewish tribe. They are of the Jewish tribe. They just, that they just have a grandparent or a grand-grandparent or a grand-grand-grandparent that switched to Christianity or switched to Islam or switched to Buddhism or switched to Baha'i or switched to some other religion or became atheist or become agnostic. That, 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 that's the only difference. But other than that, they are indigenous to that land just like you are, and they happen to be more indigenous because they were born there or their grandparents were born there. Or their parents, even like some some of uh, my uh, Palestinian friends, they they would uh, would joke and say, "My father is older than the state of Israel." So to repeat again, there is nothing humane in displacing or oppressing an entire population that is of the Jewish tribe, like you, my DNA, but maybe not sharing the religion right now to guarantee your own safety, especially when they and their grandparents were actually literally born on that land. 
I, I don't know how to explain this in other words. Like, I don't know how the logic escapes you. Again, this message is not for open-minded Zionists or open-minded Israelis or open-minded Jewish people. This is specifically for the closed-minded, for the prejudiced, who see them as the other, all of them as the other, even the small babies that committed no crimes and even didn't even form an ideology yet. Even those among them that uh, totally 100% want peace and appreciate the cause of the Jewish people needing to have a safe home, a home to call safe and feel safe at. How can you label all of them in that way? And I want to repeat again, and this is a fact that we all forget. So it's very important to note that while a majority of the Palestinians are Muslim, uh, maybe 80%, I think, uh, if I looked it up on Google, that's what I'll get. They are also Christian. So they have a grand-grand-grandparent that switched to Christianity. They're Baha'i, they're Metwali, they're Druze, they're Jewish. And they're even uh, today, many of them are atheist and agnostic. So to illustrate the extent uh, to which uh, Zionism is being twisted, by the prejudice, just like Make America Great Again is twisted in the US. Uh, by the way, I come from a shithole Muslim bank country per uh, Trump's uh, point of view. Thank you, Mr. President, Mr. Ex-President, I mean. In a recent interview with Eli Hazan, official speaker and director of communications for the Likud party, I heard him say this with my own ears, by the way. This is not something I, I, I listened to over a YouTube recording. Uh, this was live and I heard it with my own ears. So first, uh, Eli hasn't said, I know, and I'm quoting verbatim here, I know there are a lot of, I would say, unjust things in this situation, but I would prefer to be on the victorious side rather than to be in the, you know, the losing side. Because I know one thing, if I will be on the loser's side, it will be the end of me. And therefore, I have no other choice but to be victorious. I am sorry. I am so sorry for what you're suffering. I'm really sorry for that. The interviewer replied back, you said I want to be on the winning side and only on the winning side. Does that mean at the cost of any innocent Palestinians, regardless of what happens to them? Just help me understand, uh, as it does not sound humanistic at all. Eli has, has responded emphatically, and I repeat emphatically, he didn't even hesitate. I do not, I do not want to be humanistic. I can't afford to be humanistic. I want to survive. Now, I, I don't want to be appear one-sided because prejudice like that, I admit, like prejudice like that exists in the Arab world as well. A big part of it comes from the stories that we were told when we were young that, hey, we're going to, uh, the, the, the Jewish people are here to uh, kill all of us and, and the vice versa. But this narrative uh, over the years with many parents repeating it to their kids and, and so on has evolved from pure into, into, uh, into vile hatred. There are people in some of those countries that publicly say they want Israel uh, with all its children, with all its great Jewish people like you, Val, who, who, who are, uh, truly opened my mind, or Israelis that are literally fighting for Palestinians' rights, and I, and I will mention a number of them later on in, in this story, uh, 
to die and disappear from the face of the earth. They literally think that way. So that also is obviously persistence as well. And I hope they will see this and read this and will change. And I hope Eli will change. It's the same exact prejudice. It is because the Israelis hear these stories, the Palestinians want them dead, and the Palestinians hear these stories that the Israelis want all of them dead, that they proceed to paint the other camp as evil, to justify all the violence, whether that be oppression or whether that be um, uh, suicide bombers, that they plan that it's sort of like bombers that target civilians, that that uh, they plan to inflict upon the other and not feel guilt about it. They are two faces of the exact same coin, and I'm I'm hoping that these faces will both be, will be diminished, and they will both subdue over time. That's one of the primary goals of this story. Chapter six: Fear plus anger equals hatred. And you'll see, yeah, you, you, you might have noticed by now, by the way, that the sun is coming down behind me and uh, I was lighter skin at the beginning when the sun was up high. And now the sun is coming behind me and becoming darker skin. And I'm just thinking about that right now while it's happening and while you're seeing it, if you're watching this whole story, we are one. We are one. If, if you're blind, you won't even see the color of the skin. Of, and, and that's how we should be. We should all be blind to the color, the race, the ethnicity, the age, the gender, the sexual affiliation, the country, the company, the sports club, the esports team that the other believes in. We should be proud of ours and we should acknowledge that they can be proud of theirs, but we should never get that, that, that gap between us. But I digress. Chapter six, fear plus anger equals hatred. A wise person once told me that when you combine fear with anger, you get hatred. And unfortunately, that, that is happening in droves in that region and many other regions across the world. So how do we solve that problem? How do we solve that formula? If we look at it logically, how do we eliminate the hatred? So there's two variables the anger and the fear. Anger cannot be eliminated. Uh, it's your absolute right to feel angry at a suicide bomber who decimated your neighborhood or a precision IDF bomb that wiped out your entire family and you're the only one left. Uh, anger will not go away. That's a fact. Uh, it's, 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 it's not fair to ask you to forgive. Very few humans can raise to that level of not being angry and forgiving. Fear, however, can be addressed, especially fear of the entire other side. And it's the only way out of this mess. There is no other way. There's no other way to get out of the mess other than diminishing and subduing the fear. I urge you all to work hard to shed light on that irrational fear and narrow it to the actual perpetrators versus the entire population on the other side. My redemption story, which I covered here, is exactly about how I personally went through and did that. I want the Jewish folks who fear Muslims and Arabs to know that while we do have a few zealous who are prejudiced to the max, I acknowledge that, the majority of us have matured well beyond that, especially within the Palestinian population specifically. 
because the Palestinian populations have experiences similar to mine, all of them, which showed them that not all Zionists are like Eli's, wanting to survive at the cost of their own humanity. They now have the experiences of seeing humane Jewish people in Israel that are not only uh, fighting for the rights, some of those Jewish folks, Israelis in Israel, walk with the Palestinians through the checkpoints to protect them. Like that's how the extreme they would go to, to keep them safe. And I heard them with my own ears saying, we would jump in front of the bullets to protect our Palestinian friends. And I hear the Palestinian friends same, the, say the same thing about the Israeli friend. They, so they have these experiences. And then around the world, just like myself, if they travel to the US, Australia, wherever, Germany, you name it, they have also seen the other side, seen that it's not true that they're all like that. That was wrong. And that's lifting the veil of prejudiced hatred that their surroundings or the media or their ecosystems, which were very narrow back then, luckily today, the media is more open, which is, I think, will help. They, they, they lifted that veil that was embedded and implanted in their brains. And those Palestinians no longer fear the Jewish people as a group. They truly, they truly want to live in peace. Go talk to them. Go hear their stories. Don't take my word. Similarly, the majority of Arabs in the country surrounding Israel, just like myself, they love marble. They adore, they adore Stanley. They love Einstein and, and all of the great concepts that Einstein brought into the world. They believe in technology. They believe in computers and the von Neumann architecture. They, they watch the, the funny uh, sketches that uh, uh, Seinfeld comes in. They, they, they watch the movies that uh, Spielberg created. But they were suppressing the link, and now that link is starting to break. They are starting to see that not all Zionists are like Eli. They are recognizing that many of the Israeli Jewish people in the middle and on the left are seeking out and trying to help the Palestinians to get equality. They're putting, essentially, those Israeli Jewish folks are putting their humanity above the fear stories that they were nurtured on. They're not forgetting the anger of the past, even though some would argue that anger is misdirected, but they are absolutely getting over the fear of the entire side. Our leaders in the Arab world also need to do that with their populations. I mean, of course, online media and social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok are helping get these messages out to the younger generation, but the leaders need to help. They need to highlight more of those stories, but not to keep the narrative of the fear of the other side. But uh, unfortunately, to also be honest, uh, just like Trump in the US wanted us to fear the Mexicans and Muslim banned countries, so as not to focus on his shortcomings, some of the Arab leaders uh, without naming names, because uh, I still want to visit back some of those Arab countries, are doing exactly the same. They know that fear can be used to control, and fear can be used to control. They want the fear of Israel to continue. Thus, their citizens need them to remain in power to protect them. But these stories are starting to lose ground, as we have seen following many of the recent Arab Spring revolutions. The newer generation is seeing and learning more than ever before 
So the fear being nurtured into them doesn't have the chance to survive for as long as it did with us. Once the fear is diminished, then we will no longer have hatred. We will only have anger, and anger can be tolerated. Two of the most inspiring organizations I came across in Israel-Palestine are doing exactly that. They are called Roots, which is uh, founded and ran by an Israeli, and Tahir, which means change in Arabic, and it's founded and ran by a Palestinian. But they both have uh, Israelis and Palestinians in their teams. I highly encourage you to donate to them. I donated to them myself. They are both on a mission to help people overcome their fears of the other side in order to develop understanding and solidarity despite having different abstract ideological differences. So they're doing exactly what I'm describing in this story. We need a lot more of that, and not just in Israel. We need it across all the surrounding countries that have been nurtured to be fearful and angry, and hence their hearts are full of hate. It's important to note that the draconian measures of the current Israeli government against the indigenous Palestinian people, and I know some of you object to them being uh, indigenous, I will repeat again, they are indigenous by DNA. We all come from that land. It just matters how, how far back you want to go. And they are indigenous because their parents, their immediate parents or grandparents were born on that land. The draconian measures of the current Israeli government against the indigenous Palestinian people are clearly the root of this fear. And consequently, the hate. So while the work of organizations like Roots and Tahrir will slowly help reduce the fear on a person-by-person -person basis, and, and they are, then the work they're do, doing is amazing. Go look at their website. You'll see so many YouTube videos of people that changed because of them. That work from these admirable organizations is no replacement, is no replacement for restoring equality to all to get to the root of the fear. We need to remind the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Muslim Arab Jewish world at large that they can touch, that they can touch and see the dead children. We all saw the pictures. And that they should not let their belief in the fear narratives or the abstract concepts of Zionism or jihad on the other side, supersede the love of humanity in any way, shape, or form. Chapter 7, Stories of Injustice and Hope. Towards the end of May 2021, I was fortunate to listen in and participate in a Clubhouse discussion group. Uh, Clubhouse is an app where people can chat with other like-minded people. Uh, many can be talking and many, many more could be listening in any given Clubhouse. Uh, the Clubhouse discussion group was called Meet Palestinians and Israelis. In it, I heard a number of stories that truly shed a light 
on the complexity of the fear narrative on both sides. It, it is really complex. I share here a couple of, I share here a couple of stories that help me see things from a different perspective. Uh, I want to say first that there are many truly heartbreaking stories on both sides. Uh, stories of teens being sniped uh, by IDF soldiers from afar for bragging rights and fun. And videos of those are on YouTube. Uh, stories of uh, suicide bombers blowing themselves up in a bus full of innocent civilians. Again, I link to stories uh, about that on YouTube in my in the written version of this article. Stories of children being shot in the head for throwing a rock. And the very painful story, a recent story, uh, of Muhammad al-Hadidi, who lost his wife and uh, four sons in a recent uh, rocket attack by the IDF in Gaza, to be only left with baby Omar. Baby Omar is the only survivor. They found him under the rubble, but all of his family is gone. Uh, I link to that story also in my article. I am avoiding those stories here, but they're still very important stories nevertheless. The details in the stories below have been changed a bit to protect the identities of those who told them. They're of course welcome to come and share their stories later on, maybe in, in this conversation or as a reply to the Reddit or on YouTube. Happy to link to them if they do that, just let me know. I heard these stories directly with my own ears from them. I want to stress that. The first story is about an atheist actress. Her mom is senior, is, her mom is Syrian. Her dad is Palestinian. She was born in Algeria and is currently a U.S. citizen. She has a U.S. passport. She had many U.S. friends who visited Israel with, with no problem. So she figured, hey, maybe I should, uh, I should uh, go visit Israel too and join them on their next trip. Because she really yearned to see the house where her dad was born. Her dad was born in a house in, uh, in Jerusalem. I, I can't remember which city exactly. I think it was in Jerusalem, but it's somewhere in the Israeli or Palestinian territory. She's tall, pretty, and uh, her name is clearly Arab. Because of that, she was stopped in the airport in Tel Aviv and interviewed for five plus hours while her U.S. friends, who have no connection to the land whatsoever, uh, neither their parents nor their grandparents or anybody they know was born in that land, just walked across in, in minutes. This is her dad's birthland. <laughs> it was so humiliating for her to see the folks who have no link to the land get treated way more fairly than her just because of her Palestinian ancestry and the fact that her grandfather uh, or some, 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 somebody, an ancestor, decided to switch to Islam from whatever religion they had at the time. Anyway, she finally made it to Tel Aviv, but the humiliation continued. One day she was crossing a military checkpoint, which are for Palestinians only, while a younger relative who, uh, sorry, with a younger relative who has a Palestinian ID. She, 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 she's, her passport has a stamp saying she's Palestinian because of that five hour interview. So she also has to go through the same 
checkpoint. So when you cross a checkpoint as a Palestinian, uh, whether that local Palestinian ID or passport that got stamped, you have to go on foot through the longer special treatment queue versus just going through with your car, uh, like fast pass kind of entry with a car. Uh, but the fast pass can, uh, entry for the car is reserved for Israeli citizens that have the proper license plates and for non-Palestinian uh, tourists that don't have the special stamp in their passport. Uh, there was a long queue of other folks in the line behind them waiting to cross. Uh, the guard at the checkpoint told her, and I, I was shocked when I heard this, like I just couldn't believe it. The guard told her, you look like supermodel, do catwalk for us. Uh, I'll repeat again. You look like supermodel, do catwalk for us. She she thought he was joking, so she just laughed it off. He then insisted and said that he will not let her pass and will block the whole queue until she does catwalk for them. Her younger, her younger relative, a local who is used to this kind of treatment, urged her to just do it so they can get on to wherever they were going. Nobody stood up for her. Uh, from in the queue or the other soldiers. Uh, she shamefully did the catwalk, which was extremely humiliating to say the least. Uh, I am told harassment like this happens on a regular basis and uh, YouTube even has some videos of underage girls being harassed by uh, IDF soldiers at checkpoints. I have a link to it or you just search, just search for YouTube IDF underage. You, you'll find it yourself. The story hit me hard for two reasons. Uh, one, it was clear that they are trying to make it hum humiliating so that all Palestinians in the diaspora, uh, regardless of the passport that they hold, feel that they will get humiliated if they try to visit and hence avoid going there ever again. Two, I personally would love to visit Israel one day. Uh, like I would love to visit Israel. I, I, like I love the I love the Palestinian people, I love the Israeli people, the culture. Uh, I hear great things about Tel Aviv, about Haifa, about the beaches. Uh, I, I would love to see Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem has a very special place in the hearts of all the two billion Muslims in the world. But uh, I have a rather deep sense of pride, uh, just like uh, all of us, I would assume. So I'm pretty sure I just can't handle uh, hum humiliating treating. Like that. I just can't. I have a couple of uh, Israeli friends who also joked with me once, and I, I they know who they are if they're listening to this. They know exactly who they are. Uh, they they are they live in Israel, uh, and they joke with me that in addition to the long interrogations at border control uh, at the airport, I might I might also be asked to bend over to be annually probed. Uh, I really hope that that was just a joke. Anyway. Uh, the actress avoided crossing any more checkpoints during her stay. She also felt that she was constantly being watched. Uh, just a feeling. Uh, she observed that many Kazakhstani and Indonesian Muslims were working in Tel Aviv to provide care to children and elderly citizens, which kind of further confirmed the impression that this isn't about religious ideologies. This is, is, is not about Judaism versus Islam but rather about suppressing the Palestinians from ever existing in that land. 
And I know this is triggering for some Israelis, and I apologize, but if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, we call it a duck. If this isn't apartheid, then I'm not sure what is. Beth Salem, a local Israeli human rights organization in Jerusalem, concurs with this being an apartheid. Uh, on their website, they give a very detailed explanation of why that label is justified. Amnesty International concurs with the racial discrimination taking place. If you go to the website, you'll see that right now. Furthermore, and this was uh, like, I, I don't know the right term to describe it when I, when I heard it, two former Israeli ambassadors to South Africa have recently called the Israeli occupation an apartheid. So it's, it's very clear. Yet for, reason, for reasons unbeknownst to me, the, the prejudiced Zionists refuse, refuse to see it as such. The second story was an Israeli IDF soldier who's about 20 years old. His unit received intelligence during the night that rocks are being thrown at a highway, which obviously can lead to serious injuries or death if these rocks hit a speeding car. So that's a really bad thing. The soldier was ordered to go arrest whoever was throwing the rocks. He went in the night with his uh, flashlight up and gun aiming, and he approached the big boulder uh, be uh, behind which the perpetrators were most likely hiding. He, he cleared up the corner, shining the flashlight forward, and he saw the fear in the eyes of two kids who were about 11 years old. He felt morally conflicted on what to do. Uh, on the one hand, these are just terrified kids. He can reprimand them verbally, then let them go home. I mean, in fact, I, that's what he should do. On the other hand, he doesn't want to appear weak in front of his peer group. He's 20 years old. And more importantly, his commander officer were clearly court-martial him for dis disobeying the order if it became known that he let perpetrators go. With the knowledge and wisdom I have today, if I was in his shoes, I would totally let the kids go after educating them about the danger this brings to others and to themselves. But if I was still in my 20s, uh, I had been eager to fit in with a bunch of other friends, and uh, I had an explicit order from an authority figure, and there's lots of research on that, I'm not sure how I would have acted. I'm not sure. He arrested the kids and took them back to the military checkpoint. Uh, the kids were interrogated. And they find out, according to the story, uh, according to the story that uh, I heard on Clubhouse, they found out that a random stranger uh, gave the kids a significant amount of money in exchange for throwing rocks at speeding cars on the highway. And it was a pretty large sum, and therefore quite hard for any impoverished kid to refuse. Uh, the story ended with uh, this soldier relaying the story, buying the children a decent meal. Then he personally drove them back to their homes. They were obviously traumatized by the whole experience. It does not escape me that some of you would say, especially on the Palestinian side, uh, and I empathize with that, you would say, oh, this story seems made up to make us feel sympathy for the IDF soldier, the oppressor. And instead, redirect our anger towards the prejudiced zealot, the prejudiced zealot who bribed the kids 
to throw the rocks in the first place. But I assure you, as I heard the story firsthand, that you could totally hear the internal conflict the soldier had. Uh, I could, I could hear it. I could hear his voice trembling. He, maybe he was an amazing actor. But more importantly, there is lots of research that show folks in the 18 to 22, 23 age range really want to belong and they don't want to be embarrassed. The peer pressure happens. Peer pressure is a, it's why bullying happens in schools. And you couple that with an authority figure giving an order. And there's lots of research showing how authority figures giving orders make it hard, for, especially for younger folks still forming their opinions to resist. And it, it's hard to blame the soldier. The soldier is simply the nail on the hand, on the arm, on the body of the IDF. So yes, you can blame the IDF for having such policies. And yes, you can blame whoever bribed these kids if that story is true. But the story had the, the, the soldier had a point of view. And I tell this story not to show that the soldier had a point of view. Uh, that might sound disengaging, but that's the reason why I'm telling it. I tell this story to show that there is hope. That there, there are absolutely good people that are putting their humanity above the stories in their heads, above the abstract concepts, above the orders to do the right thing when they can. There are Israelis from the IDF who are absolutely struggling with the moral conflicts between the fear that they were nurtured on and the reality of terror in a child's eye. And I link to articles and I link to uh, stories in my in the written version of this article where you can hear these soldiers speaking out about how they just couldn't do it anymore. And they had to leave the army and they had to leave the IDF and they even convinced their friends to leave the IDF with them and 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 say no more, no more that we would do this in the name of safety, because this is wrong. Uh, just search on YouTube for breaking the silence. Breaking the silence is a series of many Israeli soldiers telling that story, but there's many, many others I link to in the written form of this article. The bottom line is, there is hope. And if we overcome the fear, we, on both sides, on one side by treating them well and not humiliating them, on the other side by showing them that not all the other side should be oppressed for safety, then we will overcome the hatred. There is hope. Chapter 8. Can I be an Israeli citizen? And this is obviously a rhetorical question, but I'm very serious actually about it. And I, I, I really want to know the answer. So if you know the answer, please comment or reach out to me and let me know. So as I listed earlier, per 23andMe, which is, which this 23andMe, they send them saliva and they analyze your DNA. I do have a 10th generation grand-grandparent on my mother's side who is 100%, 100% Ashkenazi Jew. So I belong to the Jewish ethnic group by DNA. So do all of we, all of us, if we go back 100,000 years, we all actually do belong. But for me, it's only 500 years ago. Do I have to convert to Judaism to exercise the right of return and be a citizen of Israel? If the answer is yes, then why is it the case 
that the 15 to 37 percent of Israelis who identify as atheists or agnostics are allowed to stay in Israel. And don't take my word, go search Google for what's the percent of Israelis agnostics in Israel. Or just visit Tel Aviv and you can see it for yourself. <laughs> to argue the point differently, if I convert to Judaism and get my Israeli passport, because now I'm, I'm Jewish by religion, Jewish by DNA, can I later renounce Judaism and keep my Israeli nationality? I sometimes also hear that it isn't about Judaism or ethnic ancestry, but rather about Jewish culture and traditions. I celebrate Thanksgiving in the U.S., and I believe that it's one of the most beautiful traditions in our culture. It's about giving. How can you not like that? And I'm totally fine celebrating Hanukkah, too, as I'm happy. And actually, I, I celebrate that Jerusalem got liberated. And hummus, an integral part of the Israeli culture, is already one of my most favorite food. But by the way, you should know that hummus was invented in Egypt during the 13th century. And don't take my word for it. Go search for it. I hope prejudiced Zionists see the irony this question represents. The big issue related to this question is the difference in the school of thought between Theodor Herzl and, and Ahad Ha'am. Theodore argued, and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because I'm not an expert in this stuff by any means, I just read a couple of Wikipedia pages. Uh, Theodore argued for a state for the Jewish people, by the Jewish people, governed by supreme laws that the Jewish people create. The fear of creating a Jewish state for all, a true democracy celebrating and protecting diversity rather than tolerating it, is that one of the minorities could potentially grow faster than the Jewish majority, and hence it will no longer be a state of the Jewish people, but instead just a state where the Jewish people live safely. Ahad, on the other hand, argued for a Jewish state in which all the Jewish people can have the safety of a home, a home that does not come at the expense of any other minority. Ahad believed the real answer is in achieving a Jewish spiritual center, which will form an exemplary model for the world to imitate. In my humble opinion, from what I read, and again, I could be wrong, Ahad was a visionary who totally saw the long-term flaws in Theodore's version. There's two, two, two flaws. The first one, many of the Jewish people will become atheist or agnostic over time due to their scientific inclinations. And we see that happening around us. Two, and I, I know I said this so many times, we are all Jewish by ancestral DNA as that piece of land was a choke point for our entire civilization. To push the rhetorical question to its limits, I personally believe that our brains are very complex. They are capable of not being binary. They are capable of holding multiple feelings, identities, associations, and relationships at the same time. I can be both proud of being an American while also ashamed of some of the actions our government does at the same time, simultaneously. Our brains are that complex. From an Israeli perspective, hypothetically speaking, am I allowed to be an agnostic, Muslim, Jewish, 
Palestinian, Egyptian, American by Israeli at the same time. Am I? And by the way, this is hypothetical. Many of these things are not true about me. I just want to highlight that. In modern democracies, we have the freedom to do just that. That's what it means to be a modern democracy. We celebrate that. We just need to figure out uh, how to make poly marriages work as a legal construct. Any number of people marrying any number of other people in one kind of union, uh, regardless of their gender. That'd be beautiful if it gets figured out. Chapter 9, Zionism versus Palestinianism. To continue to highlight the irony of how people, the irony of how people are letting their abstract belief, sorry, how people are letting their beliefs and abstract concepts win over their humanity. I want to make the following claim, which I made briefly earlier, and I know this claim triggers both Zionists and Palestinians in a very heavy way, but please bear with me till then. It will make sense. I hope it will make sense. Pure Zionism, with emphasis on pure, is, equi is equivalent to pure Palestine Palestinianism. Pure Zionism is equivalent to pure Palestinianism. Zionism is the innate desire to have a home, preferably on ancestral indigenous lands, where the Jewish people can be liberated and truly feel safe and protected from any future persecutions, ethnic cleansing, extermination, anti-Semitism, or racial discrimination. It's such a pure goal until it gets twisted to favor safety at the expense of humanity, or gets twisted to be a power, authoritarian, ultra-nationalist goal, also known as fascism, which is what Bibi is clearly doing, in my humble opinion. Or clearly did. As of this exact moment I'm speaking right now. As a sign point, it's very clear to me by now that Trump was educated, Trump was educated at that same exact school into how, how to leverage fear of the others, whether that be the Mexicans, the Muslim bank countries, or the shithole countries per his point of view, to control the population. Even the wall idea came directly from that playbook, except uh, Bibi actually built the wall. <laughs> and you can see a link to the wall and see what it looks like in, in my written article. To the Palestinians, I totally understand that the notion that Zionism is as pure as core until it gets twisted by prejudiced people is hard for you to accept because all that you see today is the vile application of it. But I hope you can see the possible equivalence from this statement. Palestinianism is the innate desire to have a home, preferably where your immediate parents not your ancestors, and still your ancestors, because you have the lineage, you were in that land for generations and generations, but where your immediate parents or even grandparents were born, where you as Palestinians can be liberated and truly feel safe and protected 
from any further ethnic cleansing, house demolitions, oppression, persecutions, humiliations, anti-Arabism, or racial discrimination. Note that I explicitly didn't say anti-Islam or Islamophobia as Palestinians adopt many religions. How many times can I say this? It's not Islam. It's Islam, it's Christianity, it's, it's Baha'i, it's, it's uh, Druze, and they have atheists and agnostics among them. This too is such a pure and noble goal. Until it gets twisted to be at the expense of our humanity, e.g. a suicide bomber killing civilians, which many Palestinians feel uh, guilt and shame about, and speak to them. They will tell you, we're sorry that that happened in our name. Or gets twisted to be a power, authoritarian, ultra-nationalistic goal, which seems to be what the Hamas leadership might be doing. They're trying to make the Palestinians think that there's no other choice. I should note that a sizable portion, actually, of Palestinians believe from the Hamas narrative. They believe Hamas to be a resistance movement vis-a-vis -vis the Black Panther Party. And again, that's their view. Uh, it's not my view. I don't necessarily agree or disagree. They believe that Hamas, that Hamas is a resistance movement vis-a-vis -vis the Black Panther Party that we had in the U.S., and believe, which also the Black Panther Party, as you know, had some uh, violent angles to it, and believe that without Hamas, that if Hamas did not exist, the IDF would come in and finish them all off. So not only do they want Hamas in power, they need Hamas in power. That's how they believe. In the same way that the, the right that votes for Eli from the Likud Party uh, saying, I cannot be humane, I need to survive. It's the same thing. It's, uh, it's really literally two faces of the same exact coin. And the fact that both sides don't see through that is, is, uh, is very perplexing to me. The only way I can explain it is that their fascist leaders might be colluding uh, whether that be explicitly or implicitly, meaning they trigger each other or they actually literally tell each other, we're going to do this and do that, to retain the power at the expense of the people. By the way, a couple of my wise Israeli friends also keep reminding me of this and making this point very vehemently. The Zionism project is done. <laughs> we already have a Jewish state. It's called Israel. So let's not keep arguing over that. It just... It just redirects away from the issues at hand. It's better to focus on helping the people of the land to get their fair, equitable, and just rights being versus being locked up in the world's largest open-air prison. I have a link in my article that explains why it's fair to call that part the occupied territories of Gaza and the West Bank, the largest open-air prison, Gaza specifically. Chapter 10. Is Israel a democracy? Many Israelis believe emphatically that Israel is a democracy. In fact, a number of international organizations recognize Israel as such. But democracy has evolved over time, and Israel is stuck in the past. 
The original definition of democracy is a system of governance where majority rule is protected and endorsed by supreme laws, typically through elected representatives, like it is here in the U.S. But that definition is old, and it has a significant issue. Hopefully you can see the issue from Eli Hazan's statement, which I share here. Uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, Eli Hazan is an official speaker and director of communications for the Likud party. Eli Hazan said, and I quote, I'm sorry, but many of the lefties in Israel are anti-Israelis. They suffer from self-hatred, a big self-hatred. You, he's telling the lefties, you are not accepting the will of the majority anymore because you are not a majority. That's what he said. And he's right. In fact, in the U.S., we had that problem too. I mean, our constitution started with we the people. But we, back then, was just white men. Women and black people were not represented and couldn't even vote. The U.S. and most modern democracies evolved the definition over time. The modern definition of democracy is majority rule, which is both protected and endorsed by supreme laws, but it's also limited by supreme laws to protect the right of minorities from the potential tyranny of the majority. Another succinct way to say it is the right by the majority to protect the rights of the minorities. So while Israel claims to be a democratic country, they are certainly not a modern democratic country by the definition above. More importantly, it is undemocratic for an official speaker of the Likud party to, to accuse Israeli citizens of being anti-Israeli and even worse, self-hating Jews, I mean, oh my God, for speaking up against the same, the shameful acts that their government is doing in their name. It's my love and pride in my country, the United States, my belief in our de democracy, constitution, and founding principles like freedom of speech is what compels me, it, it literally compels me to speak up when I see my uh, government doing shameful acts in my name, like putting Mexican kids in cages. If you call me anti-American for doing just that, then by definition, you are anti-democracy. Sorry for being prejudiced, but I couldn't <laughs> let this one go. Most importantly, a democratic state is supposed to represent all its citizens. However, the state of Israel is open about its exclusiveness for Jewish people providing extra rights to Israeli Jews, both in Israel and in the settlements, in the settlements that are built on occupied Palestinian territories. And these settlements are illegal under national law, yet they got more rights still in the occupied land where the Palestinians live. <laughs> Israel gives voting and citizen rights, exclusively Jews returning that applied for the right to return from any part of the world, from literally any part of the world even if they have never been to that piece of land in their lifetime or in their parents' lifetime. Yet it excludes the, in, the indigenous Palestinian population that, ocup, that it occupies. And again, I hear sometimes Israelis saying, oh, don't say Palestinian, first Israelis. I'm telling you as a Jew, you are. 
as Jewish people, you are Palestinian. You, sorry, you are Palestinian. We are all one, so you are Palestinian. But you, as Jewish people, are indigenous. I'm not going to argue with that. 25, 2600 years ago, Moses crossing the 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 the, the, the crossing over. Yes. We all acknowledge that you, you passed by that land many, many years ago. That does not change the fact that if you go 100,000 years ago, we were all there. And if you go just a few hundred years ago, the Palestinians were there. So we, we, we cannot be defined indigenous to be whatever we want it to be. We ha it has to stand the test of time, all time. So to repeat again, Israel gives voting and citizenship rights exclusively to Jews returning from any part of the world, yet it excludes the indigenous Palestinian population that occupies. And I, I'm sorry I got kind of emotional with this because the logic of this, not accepting that the Palestinians are indigenous, just like you are indigenous, and even more recently indigenous, it, it, uh, it, 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 it just, I can't, there's no word I can describe how it, how, how you don't see that connection. That's the exclusiveness of that connection. I just want to focus on that period of time. I, I want to ignore the recent time and I want to ignore the past time. I mean, come on. Chapter 11. Purposeful erasure of Palestine. There seems to be a purposeful attempt to erase the word Palestine from our collective memory. Essentially, erasing the identity of the Palestinians and removing any hope from their minds or brains that they can ever come back or live there. It could be happenstance, uh, but there are too, ma too many actions happening, too many things happening to be just a coincidence. In news coverage, in the US at least, you rarely, rarely see the word uh, Palestine being used. Instead, you will see words like Gaza, West Bank, uh, Palestinian territory, authority, land, people, but not the word Palestine. And uh, in the written form of this article, I have a link to a Google search that uh, tries to find articles with uh, Palestine in the title of the article from, from a number of news agencies in the US and nothing. Maybe recently, now they're starting to finally do that. Uh, Palestinians inside of Israeli proper, so this is inside of Israel, not in the occupied lands, uh, those who survived and stayed uh, despite the 1948 Nakba, which again, as I highlighted earlier, you should go search on YouTube for, 98, for uh, 1948 Nakba, Israeli, Israeli historian, Ilan specifically, I-L-A-N, to learn more about it are identified, the Israelis who survived that, are identified by Israel as Arabs and not as Palestinians. It essentially, intentionally erasing their Palestinian part of their identity, which is very insulting to them, to, to the Palestinians, because, I mean, yes, they speak Arabic. Arabic is a language, by the way. Arabic is not a race. Like, I, I, I'm Arab because I speak Arabic. That's, that's why. Uh, you're English because you speak English. <laughs> so, so, so uh, and by the way, many of the Israelis speak Arabic, so they're Arabs too. But uh, that aside, they on purpose don't want to put the word Palestine. That, that's why they're doing that. And the only other word they could think of was to, was to use uh, the Arab word. 
And it's really, it's really very strange how it happens. There is, there is even now Palestinians, uh, younger Palestinians growing up in Palestine that reached the teenage years, and they thought all their time that they were uh, Israeli, and they didn't know that they were Palestinian. They, 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 like the parents don't tell them because the parents are afraid something would happen to them, and uh, nothing around them indicates that. So they literally think they're Israeli. But of course, once they reach a certain mature age and they start to read around and become conscious, they come out of the matrix of fear and they find out the reality. So we, we can't hide that. We also witnessed uh, when Bella Hadid uh, recently posted a photo. Uh, Bella Hadid is a, like a very famous Palestinian supermodel for those who don't know her. <laughs> How could you not know Bella Hadid? But I guess some people might not know her. Uh, Bella Hadid recently posted a photo of an older version of her dad's US passport which listed Palestine as the place of birth of her dad. So the, the US passport literally said Palestine in it. And she showed that photo on Instagram and expressed her pride to be a Palestinian. That photo was immediately removed by Instagram, claiming that it went against their community guidelines. There was a major backlash and duh. Uh, which forced Instagram to apologize and, 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 and put the photo back. They, they gave a lame excuse of, oh, it was a technical glitch. We saw in the passport, a passport number. The passport number actually was not even visible. And that's why we took it off. But very silly Instagram. It's, it's, it's very similar to also when both uh, Twitter and Instagram deleted a bunch of the posts around what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Just people recording what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, Sheikh Zarah, just recording what's happening and posting it. There, there's nothing, there's nothing, no statements, no political statements, no violence, just recording what's happening. And Twitter and Instagram deleted those posts. Of course, there was lots of complaints that that's not fair, that's not uh, applicable and uh, policy-wise, it, it sounds weird. And of course, they both had to apologize and they said, oh, that was a technical glitch, it was a bug that they had in their systems. Uh, we have to believe what they say, but seriously. There are, there are many other examples of uh, the erasure of Palestinians uh, that is really weird and really kind of uh, fishy. For example, and this one is really funny actually as well, uh, try asking Siri, what is the time in Palestine? Siri will reply back, and I kid you not, this is what Siri says, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what time it is there. Sorry about that. Uh, at least you say sorry. So I said, no, I'm serious. Uh, for, for, uh, fortunately, if you ask Google Assistant or Amazon Alexa, uh, they will actually give you the right answer. They will give you the time in, in Palestine. Uh, if you ask Microsoft's Cortana, which is another less known uh, assistant that Microsoft runs, it will give you the time in Palestine, Texas. <laughs> because obviously, uh, that's where Palestine is. It's in Texas. That said, uh, just to be fair, and I will not again, Google is my employer, but I, I, the words I say here are my own words, and uh, I'm just being honest and fair. And Google has nothing to do with the, any of the words I'm saying right now. I need to make that very clear. These are my words. Google Maps does not have street names for Gaza, and that means many of the Palestinians. It, it's very discriminatory. You go there, zoom in, just search for Gaza and Google Maps, and zoom in and uh, look for uh, the streets. You will see the streets, but you will not see the names. Furthermore, the resolution of the satellite images is purposely blurred out. Like the, the high-res images are available. You can go get them from many sources for money. It's not free. Uh, but uh, on Google Maps, as you zoom in, they will give you very low quality blurred out 
especially in Gaza and West Bank, when other regions in the world have amazing resolutions. And I link to articles uh, from the BBC and other news medias that highlighted this issue many times, a long time ago. Not, it's not a recent thing. So please go take a look at that. The link is in my article. Furthermore, uh, Google Maps does not show the word Palestine. They don't even show the word Palestinian territory. And despite many uh, petitions for them to do the right thing. Instead, the only labels displayed are the Gaza Strip or West Bank. No acknowledgement of Palestinian territory, no, no acknowledgement of occupation, no acknowledgement of Palestine. I'm very proud of Google, following the line of thought in the rest of this article. I am very proud to be a Googler. I am very proud to be at Google. I am so ashamed of this, so ashamed. Uh, Microsoft Bing Maps doesn't have street names in some areas of Gaza. But again, uh, the satellite imagery is still blurred. I don't know why that's the case. I should note uh, that Google is my employer, as I said earlier, and the opinions expressed here are my own. I just need to repeat that again, because now I'm going to say something good about Google. <laughs> to Google's credit, uh, YouTube, which is owned, fully owned and operated by Google, is very equitable in how it handles content. And they have, uh, compared to Instagram or Twitter or, other, or Facebook or other, uh, other areas, other social media sites. They have very ethical guidelines that they apply consistently and fairly across all submitted content. For example, try searching YouTube in this specific conflict. You can try it for other conflicts around the world, but try searching YouTube for Israeli sniper or IDF sniper bragging, especially the bragging one is very annoying. Or search, try searching for suicide bus bomb in Tel Aviv. And you will get tons of critical content from both sides of the content equally. So I respect YouTube for that. If you uh, know of something where the content was removed uh, and doesn't, there was no fair reasons for why it was removed on YouTube, please let me know. Typically, the content will be removed if it has any, if it's inciting any form of hate. So you have to be careful, of course, never to do that, which is the right thing to do. Uh, another example is the NBA debacle from uh, three years ago. Uh, NBA is the National Basketball Association, where the NBA listed Palestine as one of the countries on their website. The Israeli sports minister uh, sent the NBA commissioner a letter and requested the removal of Palestine, claiming that it is an imaginary country. The NBA responded by apologizing to Israel and proceeded to erase Palestine instead of like putting Palestinian territory or West Bank or the Palestinian people or so many other ways to resolve that. They just deleted it. I don't know what's the latest now. Maybe, maybe they fixed that. I haven't checked uh, recently what's the fix. So I really hope this is coincidental. I really hope that this is just technical glitches and bugs and misunderstandings. Because if this is deliberate, if this is like a deliberate action uh, from some cabal out there to try and, uh, and remove the word Palestine from all of our collective memories and dictionaries, uh, then I have news for you. That's very naive uh, and borderline stupid, to be honest. If we were never able to forget Babylonia from thousands of years ago, you think we'd be able to forget Palestine today when we have digital technology? Well, first, we have billions of people uh, that know about Palestine. We have 2 billion Muslims who 
can't wait for the day that they have the freedom to be able to go to visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque and see it. And we have technologies capturing every single piece and bit of information around us and digital documents that tra trace, back, trace back hundreds of years. So do you think this can be done? Seriously, I mean, come on. I can't understand. Chapter 12, a message of hope. My heart really goes out to the innocent Palestinians in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank who are trapped between prejudiced folks on both sides. The current Israeli government, under the pretext of safety and survival, tries to contain the Palestinians by taking away their human rights with impunity, as the current U.S. government, which I'm ashamed of their actions, proud but ashamed of their actions when it comes to this, vetoes every U.N. condemnation of Israel. When many other countries, almost all the other countries, are condemning. Hamas, on the other hand, tries to, to make the population, the Palestinians, feel that they have no other defender but them. Otherwise, the IDF will come in and wipe all Palestinians off the face of the earth. The people in the middle are oppressed by both. And it breaks our, it breaks my heart. It should break our hearts. Especially the innocent children that are being killed and not traumatized. I mean, there's many, many more being traumatized. I mean, the killed is just a small number. Of course, our hearts breaks for them. But at least they're dead now. The ones who are around them, millions of them are just traumatized day in and day out in the middle of the conflict. Whether that be because of the IDF fire, firing missiles and wrong targets, or as frequently they get abused, uh, Hamas is using the kids as human shields. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what we get told sometimes. It doesn't change the fact that the kids are still being abused. Either way, if somebody's using them as shield or you're purposely killing them, they're still being abused. They're kids. We all know it. It's visible and shared across social media. It isn't hidden like atrocities in the past. We can't claim we didn't know that this was going on. These are kids. They haven't formed any abstract ideologies in their heads yet. They are still forming these abstract concepts, the ideologies, they're still forming. They just want to eat ice cream and play with toys. That's all they want to do. Yet we kill them or use them as human shields. or let them be used as human shields, which is just as bad. It's also important to note the power imbalance between the IDF and Hamas. The Israeli government is the occupier. That's a fact. And the IDF is known to be one of the most technologically advanced militaries in the world with powerful nuclear arsenal to back that up. As such, the government of Israel has the moral responsibility because of that strength, that is an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude strength, to protect the kids, and frankly, to protect everyone, including those it occupies. And instead of responding to Hamas's action by applying collective punishment on all the people in Gaza, which is against international law, that said, to the Palestinians suffering, the Palestinians who are just trapped in the middle, don't lose hope. If modern history has taught us anything, it is that peacefully finding a solution 
does win in the end. It is the way. Israel has a fully funded military. They have drones that can hunt you down whenever you hide. So violence will absolutely get you nowhere. And I know this sentence is hard for some of you to hear, but it's the truth. This isn't resistance, this is suicide. You are committing suicide. And please don't think that I'm telling you, don't defend yourselves. If a soldier comes to shoot or humiliate a member of my family, I will absolutely jump in the middle, resist and commit suicide to save my family. So I understand that when it's, when it's in defense. That said, you need to be smart about it. It doesn't take a genius strategist to plot the violence course out. That said, there is absolutely hope for you to be free. And the best example of that is how Gandhi beat the mighty British Empire in India. Again, orders of magnitude, more power, beaten. How Mandela freed South Africa, current government corruption aside. And how Martin Luther King freed the black people in the US, current police brutality, current disgusting police brutality aside. Their weapon, which brought these superpowers to their knees, was nonviolent, peaceful, civil disobedience. I'll say this again. Their weapon, which brought these superpowers to their knees, was nonviolent, peaceful, civil disobedience. It works. The strategy works, and it will work in this case. Know that. You're all doing it right now by sharing the social media videos and showing the world how peaceful you are in the demonstrations and how the right-wing Israeli government is oppressing and suppressing you, clearly. And I link to many videos in my article for those who want to see it. That will get you allies who are willing to lend you their privilege, both from the U.S. and from within Israel, who can change the government and write a better future for all of you. But also get allies from other countries like uh, Norway's 1.3 trillion sovereign wealth fund, which is divesting from first with connections to the settlements. Or the Maldives, which is officially severing ties with Israel because of these atrocities. So I urge you to continue to lever leverage peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience that highlights all the humanitarian issues taking place. Please, please, please join forces with movements like Tahrir and Roots or donate Tahrir and Roots to help change the narrative and educate the other side on who they should really fear versus fearing all. Tell your stories authentically from the heart and share them loudly and widely. Study the Heartlines examples from South Africa, where Heartlines is an organization that lets the South Africans, both whites and blacks, tell their stories and how they feared each other and how they found each other. Or similarly, the Theater of Witness examples from North and South Ireland, where they did exactly the same. These, that is the answer. Do that. Plus, peaceful civil disobedience and peace will come back. You need the Israelis to help, and some of them are indeed helping. As I said, I, I know of Israelis that cross the checkpoints with you to protect you from being humiliated. I mean, 
they are starting to demonstrate with you and for you in the streets in Israel and in other countries. I link to the video of an IDF soldier who quit the IDF and now is one of the most pro, 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 one of the strongest proponents for the freedom for Palestinian people. Just gave an amazing talk in Norway the other day. I highly recommend you go look at it. I have it linked in, in, in the written form of the article. They are starting to work beside you to protect you when moving through checkpoints, as I said. Movements like Roots and Tahrir and others give all of us hope. They're also trying very hard and will succeed to get Bibi out of government. And they will do it. They will do it because they're good. To prejudice soldiers in the IDF, I urge you to join conscientious objectors, those who refuse military service as it's the face of occupation and oppression of the Palestinians. Or at a minimum, please don't let the fear stories you are told get you to compromise on your humanity. If you are ordered to shoot a child or arrest him or her in a very violent way, say no and go to the court martial. It's the humane thing to do. Similarly to prejudiced Palestinians who throw rocks at moving cars on the highway just to inflict harm on innocent civilians, please stop. Because that's not only inhumane, but will make things worse for you. Actions like these amplify the fear. And might you feel, oh, I want something here, I want something there. It will lead to a never-ending cycle of hatred. It achieves nothing. I, I know you can respond to this and say, uh, F off. Uh, you're so safe in your home in California with sunny weather. You Get away from us. You don't know or feel our oppression. We need to resist every way we can. And my response is, you're right. I actually, I can choose to forget about this whole mess and say nothing. Why bother? But I'm lending you my privilege because I care about you. And my heart goes out to all of those innocent uh, children and civilians who are dying for nothing. I'm trying to help you see the right path for a better future. And to be clear, I'm not saying don't resist an IDF soldier. I'll say this again. If an IDF soldier is trying to kill one of your family in front of you, resist in every way you can. I will. I will jump in front of a bullet to save any of my family or friends. And I heard Palestinians say they would jump. I heard the founder of Tahrir say he would jump in a bullet to save, like literally, he's a Palestinian. He said, I will jump in front of a bullet to save the founder of Roots, who is an Israeli, and the same, and vice versa. That type of resistance, totally okay. So I'm saying don't attack innocent civilians because many of those cars also carry innocent kids and might carry Israelis like Rabbi Shol Judelman from Roots who are fighting for your rights. I hope that's clear. Chapter 13, a possible solution. Just learning from lessons of the past and the, the more recent past. I see two things that need to happen for, for us to resolve this conflict. 
and this is these are my thoughts you can agree with them you can disagree with them regardless these are my thoughts i own them i can tell them we need to reinforce movements like roots and terrier which are helping overcome the fear of the other despite anger and ideological and ideological differences so that mutual understanding and solidarity are achieved this will need to be coupled with a lot of videos and stories showing the humanity of both sides at scale it will need to be coupled with restoring rights to everybody equal rights to everybody it will need to be coupled with non-violent peaceful civil disobedience from within israel and from outside of israel so that international pressure is applied to catalyze the Israeli government to move faster in terms of restoring equal rights. The roots and Tahrir fear reduction efforts need to also be replicated in neighboring countries, especially Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and the Gulf countries, Iraq and Iran. And vice versa, the other, Israel needs to see their side and both ways. That's the only way we're going to stop, stop fearing all of the other and see that we are truly one. While one is being achieved, I think Israelis and Palestinians and Israelis with international pressure, because maybe without they will not do this, should work towards building, and I know this is very hard, but we are one equals this answer. They united states of Jerusalem. I'll say this again. Israelis and Palestinians should work towards building the United States of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem Union could be another like the European Union could be another angle similar to the USA and similar to the European Union, i.e. have a truly democratic supreme law also known as the Constitution that governs that Union then within that Union you can have not just two states. I hear people saying two-state solution. It doesn't have to be two-state. It can be multi-state. It can have multiple states within that union. Some are Israeli Jewish, very Jewish, both in terms of ethnicity and religion. Some are Palestinian. Some are hybrid, both. And some are atheist. And some are for lesbian gay communities to marry whoever they would like and marry as many people that they would like. And each one of these states would have their local jurisdictional differences that make them have the extra special thing they would like to do, but they still ab abide by the common law from the Supreme Court of the Union. And that's very similar to how California and Texas have local similar uh, differences, despite abiding to the uh, U.S. Supreme Law. For example, California uh, has legalized weed. Uh, it's not true yet in Texas. Weed is marijuana for those who don't know. But they still abide by a higher authority that ensures equal rights for all, freedom of travel, freedom of trade, and freedom of work. The higher authority should also enforce equal laws for all, especially against violence. Whether that be from prejudiced Islamists who throw rocks at moving cars on highways or prejudiced Zionists, which, by the way, they do horrible things as well. Similarly, here in the U.S., whether that be from a... a, a uh, a, 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 uh, an act committed by a Muslim, or whether that be an act committed by a white person who invades the capital of the United States. 
in a, in a, in an unruly way. The law applies on all equally, regardless of who is disrupting the peace. The rules and laws should also ensure everybody gets their legal home and land back, whether that be home, whether that home be in an Israeli substate or a Palestinian substate. So I truly believe of a day when the United States of Jerusalem is achieved and an exemplar democratic Zion, which celebrates and embraces diversity is born. Again, celebrates and embraces diversity is born. I further dream that Jerusalem itself will become like Andalusia in Spain, a multicultural, multi-religious, true democracy where people from all over the world can visit and marvel at the richness of civilization, at the richness of many religions that passed by that region, and at the endurance and survival of peace despite all of the war and hardships. Hopefully that day will come. Chapter 14, The Pledge. To be honest, I have no beef in this fight. I don't. I don't have any family in Israel or Palestine, and I've never visited, and I might not be able to visit because I cannot uh, take the abuse at the airport. I'm too proud. But I'm a human, and I feel connected to the people over there, both the Israelis and the Palestinians, given that I was born on a bed in Shobra, in Cairo, very close to where they are. To put things in perspective, the distance from Cairo to Gaza is half the distance from Los Angeles to San Francisco, for those who know how big California is. And I like the culture. I like, I mean, we share so many things, Om Kalthum, Hummus, and many, many others. I, I, I truly would love to visit one day. I want to help. Thus, I pledge to help in the following ways. One, I will lend my privilege and speak up on your behalf, like I'm doing right now, whenever I can. I will stand right behind you as the fight is yours, not mine, but I will defend you as needed. This applies to all peace-loving, non-precious Israelis and Palestinians like Rabbi Shaw Judelman from Roots or Ali Abu Awad the founder of Taghir. Number two, I will not invest or buy products from corporations trying to benefit from this conflict or help the current government of Israel oppress certain classes of people versus others. Three, I will donate to efforts that are either trying to reduce the fear, <clears throat> again, like Roots and Taghir, trying to show movies and, and films and stories that reduce the fear. There is many more being born like that. Again, similar to clients in South Africa that I showed earlier. So I would donate to efforts like that or to efforts trying to hear the children that have been severely damaged, both physically and more importantly, mentally traumatized. And I have links in my article to, to show you some of the mental traumatization going on because of these wars. And one of the best examples of such an organization is uh, the PCRF, uh, the Palestinian Child Relief Fund, which is a organization here in the United States, and they do help children back in the occupied territories. Uh, PCRF is ranked four stars, uh, meaning that most of the money that they take goes towards the programs and not towards the salaries of peoples running the program. Highly recommend you donate to them. They are a 510C for those in the US. They are, PCRF is a 510C, so fully tax deductible. 
Four, I pledge to influence my representatives in the U.S. government and at the company I currently work for, Google, to stand by equality and human rights for all people, regardless of their race, religious persuasions, ethnicities, ideologies, cultures, beliefs, you name it. We are one. We are one. You should try to help too. But if you can't be part of the solution, please don't be part of the problem. In other words, for all the Arabs in neighboring countries, either try to help the Palestinians peacefully, as outlined above, donate money to them, uh, civil disobedience peacefully with them, or the other things I mentioned above, help make their stories and film their stories, or leave them alone and instead focus on making your countries better. The Palestinian situation only gets worse when you come in, you say anti-Semitic anti stuff, essentially gaslighting the situation from where you are, increasing the fear on both sides and leaving. It's, it's horrible. Stop it. Just take your hatred and direct it towards making your country better. That will benefit you in the long term much more than anything else. Similarly, just to be fair, for the prejudiced Jewish diaspora that don't ever plan to live in Israel, I totally understand your fear of history repeating itself. I, I get it, especially with the recent rise in anti-Semitic attacks. I totally understand your need for Israel to thrive so you have a safe place to go back to in case shit hits the fan, like they say. And I'm hoping, it, I'm hoping we as a civilization now at the point where that would never happen again, but actually it is happening to the Palestinians, so maybe it will happen again. So I understand that. I understand that need. But you also need to butt out. <laughs> For now, at least, because you are making things worse. You too jump in with minimum knowledge of what's happening on the ground. Uh, you say irrational anti-Palestinian words, like all of the Palestinians are uh, terrorists. I, I hear some of you say that. You amplify the fear on both sides. Then you go back to the safety of your own homes. It's not fair. So you also need to take that uh, prejudice and put it away and chill for a bit. Let the Israelis in the Israel here heal the country. Let the Israelis in Israel heal the country. What you can do is educate yourself on how to become allies to them. So become allies to those Israelis because they have a better sense of the pulse and what's going on. They are the ones in threat when something bad is happening, like what happened in recent attacks. Help them. Be allies for them and support them. Be allies also for the Palestinians, if you can see and understand my logic here that we are one and the Palestinians are like you, Jewish by DNA, by lineage. The Palestinians don't have Islam as their only religion. They have many others. So you can't hold it against them that their grand-grand-grandparents switched from Judaism to some other religion. That is obviously wrong. If you believe these arguments, then you should be helping, the, becoming an, you should be becoming an ally for the Palestinians as well. especially the Palestinians who are peaceful, nonviolent, and are simply asking for their basic human rights. I was told by uh, my friends uh, not to do this, not to record the story, not to write this. Uh, they told me if you do this uh, publicly in this way, as opposed to between people you know, you'll be faced by criticism from both groups, the prejudiced even, and a self-hater, a kafir. Uh, 
and the prejudiced Zionists uh, will call me an anti-Semite, which I have no idea how it, that would even come out from this logic. I just, I'm like, I'm Semite by language. I'm Semite by DNA. Like, come on. Sorry. It just, it really uh, obsessed me when they call me anti-Semite or call me anti-Zionist when I clearly explained what Zionist means. Go read the Zionist chapter I have here and I clearly explained how I respect Zionism as its core. I don't expect its application to oppress a whole class of people. But regardless, if you were to call me these things, to both these groups, I would like to say, please know that I love you. You are human like me. I am human like you. My heart breaks for what you're doing to each other. It really breaks that you don't see the irony in all of this. And I will stand by my principles. I will stand with uh, my own principles and my own ideology. My own ideology is equal admiration for all of humanity over any single race or any single ideology, any single belief, any single sexual orientation, any single gender, any single anything you can name. While simultaneously, it doesn't mean that I don't respect having an ideology because I simultaneously am very proud of my own identity. I'm a very proud Egyptian, American, Muslim, gamer, nerd, and currently Googler. Thank you. Chapter 15, conclusion and the dream. To conclude this entire story, one, please don't let abstract ideologies we adopted in our heads or the hateful stories from the past, from way past that got entrenched in our psyche as children supersede our humanity towards each other. Because the only indisputable fact is that we are 99.9% .9 the same. And if you come from the same land, within the last few hundred, 500 years, you are 99.9999% the same. We all, if we go back 100,000 years, uh, sorry, 150,000 years, we all come from the same grandma, MT Eve or scientific Eve. I see that, it changed me. I matured, and I hope you can mature too. Two, modern history has shown us more often than not that peace, that peace, justice, and equality win out in the end. So many examples of that. And so many examples of how to do it. So don't give up hope. Keep sharing your stories of real people on all sides so, we, that, so that we anchor back to the human tragedy happening around us and overcome the irrational fear of all the other, which doesn't make any sense. I know this is hard to believe. And uh, for those in the tornado, it seems almost impossible seems almost impossible that we will achieve peace. But history has shown us that peace and humanity always win in the end. It is the way. It is the way.